Turn in your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 3, and in about 30 minutes when you find it, we'll look at it. Habakkuk chapter 3. Continuing our series this morning on worship. Worship is mysterious. Do you remember the first time that you walked into a place, a church, a, a home, a building, um, and and you walked into a room where people were worshiping? I mean, it, it, it takes you back, doesn't it? Especially if you're not, if you haven't done it, if you're not used to it. There's something, there's a presence in it. There's something different about it. And it's mysterious. It's hard to define. It's elusive. What is, what is worship? Is it, is it a type of music? Is it a seating arrangement? Is it singing? Is it noise? Is it clapping? Is it raising your hands? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it praying? The, the, I want you to think about this for a minute. Try to, try to broaden your mind as much as you can and think about uh, uh, the widest perspective on this. There have been more church fights over music and worship and worship services probably than anything else in the last 50 years. Do you think that in some way the enemy may have tricked us to get us to divide at the very point that we, that we are brought into this place where we glorify God? That, that, that is a, a phenomenal tactic, I think, of the enemy. St. Augustine, when he was talking about time, said, when, when, when nobody asks me what time is, I know what it is. When somebody asks me what it is, I don't know what it is. And I feel that way about worship. If you don't ask me what it is, I know exactly what it is. But if you, if you ask me what it is, I go, well, how do you, how do you mean that? What do you, what, do you, what do you mean worship? Vine's Dictionary uh, says, uh, this is a biblical dictionary, it says that the worship of God is not defined... Anywhere in the Bible. You will not find, you can't will over to 2 Corinthians whatever verse 4 and find worship is what? Worship is what? The Bible doesn't in that way define it anywhere. So we've named this series Worship Is. So I want to talk about it. Vine's Dictionary says, not the Bible, but Vine's Dictionary says, worship is to do reverence, to kiss, to bow down. I, I want to, in this series, talk about worship as, in, the, in a sense as a connection. I, I, think, I think in the modern era that we've been in, sometimes we've lost our understanding or connection to God in worship because we've gotten so sophisticated and complicated in worship that we've actually in some ways allowed ourselves to worship worship we can worship the act we can worship the form we can worship the instrumentation we can worship the sophistication we can worship the technology we can worship our own ability to do it and so i i know because of that there's been a resurgence of this teaching that's been in Scripture, by the way, all along. But there's sort of been a resurgence of this teaching to try to broaden our understanding and say, look, worship's not what you do at 10.30 or 11 or, or 10 on Sunday. 
Worship is your life. It's the way you speak. It's the way you act. It's the way you think. It's the way you talk to each other. In other words, uh, uh, everything that you do is can be a worshipful act to God. I, I cannot agree more. That's exactly right. But what I really want to focus on, that's kind of my mindset. I tend to have a holistic mindset about worship. That's how I tend to think about it. I don't tend to think about it in... Uh, uh, you look at the back of your bulletin and they give you the schedule stuff. I don't tend to think about worship inside that. I tend to think about it, uh, uh, you know, cosmically, globally. But what I want to do is, is, in this series, I do want to think about it in the event. I do want to talk about it in that sense where we can misunderstand it in the moment. Not necessarily the varieties of way that we can worship God, but the connection. Not so much as a lifestyle, but a connection to the presence of God. There are those moments in your life, obviously a worship service is always one of them. But there are those moments in our life where, 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 where God's presence is, is, we're aware of His presence. And there's a moment where He's trying to do something and now I'm, I'm going to call that worship. Now, I think one of the reasons that we misunderstand the event or the act of worship, it goes back nearly 1,700 years. 1,700 years ago, there was a dramatic shift in the life of the church globally that, that we still sort of carry out today. Constantine became a Christian in A.D. 312. He used his political power... To strengthen the church. Now I want you to listen very carefully to the way I say this. He basically made the Christian church the imperial church. And this was the beginning of the church's rise to earthly power. Not heavenly power, not supernatural power, to earthly power. He, he basically adopted Christianity as the religion of choice by the imperial government in, in every providence that he was over. And basically said, if you live here, you're going to be a Christian. And government and church got connected. Government and church got related. Now, this was the beginning of the church. So he began to use his governmental and, and uh, authoritative power to leverage the church. When that happens, there are unintended consequences that come along with it that nobody can foresee. But look at this. In, in AD 312, just as the church in that century began to rise in earthly power, the gifts of the Holy Spirit began to diminish. There was an unintended trade-off. Now you can read, there are historical documents now that help us to see that the gifts of the Spirit, as many, as th- many have thought for years, never really disappeared. They did shrink. They became very marginalized and minimalized and Often pockets and what people in those days would have thought were weirdos. But the gifts of the Spirit shrunk as the church took on a different form of worship. An institutional form. That had a profound effect on how and where churches met. Until that time, churches had had almost always met in homes or outside. But Constantine had government buildings built for Christian worship. Where would he get the idea on how to build a building for Christian worship? Well, from government architecture. So whatever the civic centers, 
Whatever, whatever the arenas looked like in that day, what he did then is he took, transferred that over and he modeled the architecture after civic auditoriums and the front was really high and elevated and it had a big throne, a big royal-looking throne that the bishop would come and sit on. And then, in, in, the, in the area uh, out where you are, then there became this or organization of set synchronized rows and cut trim aisles where people could be neatly organized, all fanned out. Well, kind of like this right here. Actually, exactly like this. 1,700 years later, we're still sort of doing it the same way. Kind of cut out like this to all face the front. This changed the way worship happened. It changed it. Until that time, everyone felt like they were supposed to participate. They thought they were supposed to be involved in the act of worship. There were no spectators. For the first 300 years of the church, worship was very simple and plain and personal. You had the assumption that if you were there, you were to engage and be involved. And now the church shifted from this uh, personal and simple worship way, this sort of scattered chaos, it shifted to this formal uh, architecture filled with pomp and circumstance and civil architecture of the imperial court. Now, because of modern fad, because of historical conditioning, I think we most often misunderstand what worship is. Uh, now, if you look, this is the way our architecture is today. Go sit in a movie theater. How's everything organized? Go sit in a football field. It's all around to the center. Go, go to a high school play and look in a school auditorium. Everything's built. Everybody's looking at the back of everybody else's head, facing one direction, looking. And the problem is that can give you the misunderstanding that you're the audience. You can actually believe that you're the audience. Now, I want to show you how this is exactly backward from, from what we will understand in the kingdom worship is. See, what you can do is you can come in here on Sunday and because of the way the room's filled out, you can look up here at the people on the stage and you can say, wow, I can't play the guitar like that. I can't sing like that. I wish I could sing like that. I wish I could play the piano like that. I wish I, wish I could. You know, when I sing with somebody else, the notes would harmonize and, and crescendo at just the right point. But I can't do that. And so you can look and say, wow, these are the worshipers. But like I'm surfing the internet or watching TV or, or at a football game or at a play, I'm just sort of a spectator. And I can just zone in or out anytime I want. I'm like at a movie. It's happening up there, but I'm not really in it. I'm not really part of it. We think that the people on the stage are the performers and we are the audience. But how do you think God sees it? We think about it that way because the way our buildings are built. All of our buildings, not just church buildings, all buildings where crowds are, are pretty much built the same way. How do you think God thinks about it? Let me give you a different view. I think what God thinks then is that, is that these people here are not the worshipers. They're, they're the guides. They're the leaders. They're the prompters. They're the directors. They're the ones that come in and say, Isn't God good? God's good. Isn't He good? 
Man, sing with your soul. Man, come and make a beautiful noise to God. I'm not here to do all the singing. I'm just here to show you what song we're going to do next. But man, stand to your feet. Lift your hand. Lift your soul. Lift your voice. And worship God. That's what they're here for. They're not here. They're not here. As, and they should never think they're here for anything other than that. And you should never think they're here for anything other than that. That's what this is about. These are the prompters. These are the encouragers. You know what? You know what a spur on a rooster is, don't you? They're here to spur us on. Say, come on, come on. You may have had a hard week, but if you forgot how great God is, you may be going through something, but we're not talking about something you're going through. We're talking about something that's above everything you're going through. We're talking about God. That's what, that's what this is about. But who are you then? You're not the audience. You're the worshiper. You're the worshiper. They're not the worshiper. You're the worshiper. Well, then who's the audience? I'll tell you who the audience is. We only actually, from heaven's point of view, have one person in the audience. It's God. There's only one person in the audience. And he's watching. And he's listening. And he's saying, come on. Come on, lift your body, your soul, your mind, lift your being up higher than created things and put it on the creator. I'm God and I deserve every bit of worship you can give me. He's God. He's the audience. It doesn't matter what the room looks like. You have to rebel against the room. He's the audience. These are the directors. Come on, come on. And the stage is actually there where you sit. And cosmically, you're standing on it. Now, other people might not see you on it, but it doesn't matter. They're not supposed to. They're not in the audience. Remember? There's only one person looking at you on that stage. It's God. And you enter into that moment of connection to His divine presence and you worship Him. And that's how worship happens. You can always tell a person who doesn't understand what worship is because they act like an audience. They act like an audience. Well, I didn't like that song. Who died and made you the audience? That's my favorite song. So? It like doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. If the focus is God's presence, it doesn't matter. The fact is, He's the audience. And if you get that right... It changes the way that you engage in worship. It changes your mind. It changes the way you express. It changes. It just, it, it changes you. So worshipers know that God's the audience and they're on the stage for Him to see. Let me give you a definition this morning if you're taking notes of what worship is in case the big 10-foot banners have not given it away already. 
Worship is surrender. Let me tag a word on that. Expressed. Worship is surrender expressed. Surrender finds a way in you. You allow it. You find some expression for it in your life. Worship is surrender expressed. Last spring, uh, an incredible thing happened. Uh, There was what I was told was a hundred year flood around here. Remember that? Last spring, we had to, the industrial road was closed here because it had rained so much and water was coming over the road. You know, uh, living down in the swamps of Mississippi, that seemed like, you know, summer to us. But some of you told us that it was a lot of rain. So we, we believed you. The hundred year rain... And the, the river over in Helena by the depot where the dam is, that I saw a picture of that. That was one solid sheet of water that went across there. It's hard to believe that when you look at it now. And uh, down by our house over off Old Thompson Road, Buck Creek had backed up to the point that it just about flowed over that bridge down on Old Thompson Road. I mean, it rained and rained and rained. Roads were closed. Flooding was everywhere. But you know one of the things that I noticed? What I noticed is that the lowest parts of Shelby County got the most water. I thought that is a beautiful picture of what worship is. Worship is surrender. The lowest part gets the most of his presence. The lowest person in this room, the most surrendered person in this room, gets the most of God's presence. The, the most surrendered part of your life is where God's presence is active the most. The most surrendered seasons of your life are the seasons that God's presence was active in you the most. Surrender is what worship is. Do you remember what Job said? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But what did he do? Surrender. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God's presence filled his life in a way that caused him to endure all the things that he was going through at the time. What is worship? Worship is when you and I become aware that God's presence is present. It's when we become aware that he's there, we surrender to his presence and then we express that. We realize that he's there. He's there. And, and it dawns on us that he's here. You, you can sing songs and go through the act over and over enough that you've got the whole thing memorized and you can just replay it like an old DVD in your mind over and over. But that's not a connection. That's repetition. But you can connect in repetition. But you can also let that become so loud you can't. So it's when we become aware that he's there and then we surrender to his presence. Worship is an internal attitude that extends to an external action. One one thing that I want us to get as this series goes on, one of the things that I really hope that sinks into your spirit is a greater connection to God's presence. just Just a greater sense that he's there and how to connect to him. And that'll only come... There's only one way to have a greater connection to God's presence. It's greater surrender. I have to surrender somehow in a deeper way. 
Now, in the book of Habakkuk, have you found it? In the book of Habakkuk, this is one of the most unique books in the Bible to me. It's short. Um, it is concise. It is confrontational. Habakkuk, uh, the people there, without going into all the deal, they were under great oppression by the enemies of God and of Israel. Deep, deep oppression. And they were being mistreated. And, and Habakkuk, I read through it just this morning again, uh, Habakkuk would go to the Lord and complain. God, when are you... He, 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 and most of, most of his statements had something to do like this. Why? Why are you letting this happen? Why, why, why are you allowing the enemies of God, why are you allowing these pagans to torture us? Why? Isn't it true that what gets you most in life are the why questions? God, why is this happening? Why? And you know what I found out? Actually, the why questions get harder. They don't get easier. Let me tell you why. (laughs) Because when I was younger in the Lord and I didn't know His will or His ways, it was mysterious enough that I would accept it. But as I got older in Christ and knew His will and His ways, and I saw things that I knew weren't His will, then the why became more haunting. God, why? I know this. Look at this suffering. Look at this. I know this is not Your will. Why? And the question that's just on its heels is when? When are you going to do Do you see this? Can you see what's going on in my life? God, when are you going to restore? When are you going to fix this marriage? When are you going to bring a job, me a job? God, when are you going to get me out of this mess? Lord, when are you going to let forgiveness heal our marriage? Lord, when are you going to allow that rebellious child that I've raised? When are you going to allow us to reconcile? God, when? How long are you going to sit and watch and not do anything? God, I know this isn't you. I know it's not what you want. Then why haven't you acted and when are you going to act? And Habakkuk was complaining through this book. He would complain and then God would respond, but not act. He would complain and God would respond, but not act. And several times through here, you see the word I underlined it. Why, why, why? How long and why? These are the two questions you see. And then God would respond, but not act. Now, let me pull over to a rest stop for a minute. Let me give you three reasons that we struggle with surrender. Three enemies of surrender. This is simple and quick. The first one is when things are going too well. When things are going really well, we tend to have a hard time with surrender because we're ice skating across the cream curdle of life right across the top. And it seems like nothing can touch us there. And we're actually usually dumb enough to think that we had something to do with getting up there. And things are going too well. They're just going too well. So surrender, uh, not today. Look, look, it's incredible. Look, look at my life. Look what's going on. Things are going so well. And we tend to resist when things are going so well. We don't feel any pressure to act. 
Another enemy of surrender is, is apathy. Sometimes you have almost the opposite problem. Whatever happens, what difference is it going to make? I mean, I, I mean, what difference is it going to make? I'm not going to do anything because it's not going to matter. So, so then there's that season that you just don't feel like you can get the energy to surrender to God the way that you know He's calling you to do. And, and then the other one is when things are going really bad. Discouragement is an enemy of surrender. Discouragement. And you get that thing. Have you ever been, have you ever been talking to someone and you're trying to encourage them? You say, oh, but look, God loves you. And look, I, and they say, yeah, you know, I, yeah. You know, you know you're talking to a discouraged person when you're telling them encouraging things and their answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. And sometimes you and I have had that conversation in our own head. I don't know. Maybe. You know, I guess. I mean, I, I just, God know I'm here. I don't know. Is he going to help? I don't know. Is he going to do anything? I don't know. I, I just don't know. And discouragement is an enemy. It keeps you at odds with God, where you won't break in and surrender and just let Him have His way because you're discouraged. You say, well, it, you know, it probably won't matter. I don't know if God even cares. I don't know if He's going to help me anyway. In discouragement. As you get near the end of the book of Habakkuk, this is where, chapter 3, you see this unresolved tension, complaint, God's response without action, Complaint, no action, complaint, no action, complaint, no action. And Habakkuk writes what I think are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, starting with verse 16. Listen to his answer. Or the way he ends the book. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decray kept crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. In other words, God hadn't done anything yet. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Listen to this verse. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Now think about what he's saying right there. I do not have my questions answered. Why? I don't know. When? I don't know. But what Habakkuk resigns himself to somehow is, I'm not going to have the answer to those questions in the middle of that tension, in the middle of the unanswered questions, before God's ever done anything, and he still doesn't know when God's going to do anything, he says, I know how to resolve this. I'll surrender. And he says, God, I surrender to your presence. Though there may be no food on the trees, though there may be no 
uh, cattle in the stall. May there be no answer yet. Maybe the marriage isn't resolved yet. Maybe the job's not here yet. But I don't have to wait, thank God. I don't have to wait for all the tensions of life to be resolved before I just lift my eyes up and say, there's something bigger than I am. There's something bigger than the circumstance. And Lord, I connect to you today. I surrender to the will of your presence and I magnify you and I glorify you and I stand in awe of you today. But the tension's still there. The story ends with Habakkuk saying, No matter what, no matter what, I will surrender. No matter what. It almost sounds like Job's, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. You do what you want, God. The spirit that this book closes in, in my opinion, is one of the sweetest in all the Bible. It's an attitude that I believe captures the heart of what worship is. So think about for a minute the why questions. What are the why questions that get us? Why, why did it have to happen? Why did this go on in my life? You know, I, I think about our little eight-year-old boy, Tyler. And I say, God, why? why? Why did he have to go through what he went through last week? Why did he crash? Why did he ache? Why did he hurt? Why does he have diabetes? Why him? Why now? Why here? Lord, why? Why? I don't know. I don't have the answer. And I'm suspicious of people who think they do. Why? I, I had hoped... that when, when I gave him the shot in June that he would never wouldn't have to do that ever again and I'd hope that Stacy would never have to do it because it sticks with you but she did why three times May June and November three times in one year why why does that happen we don't know for sure. There's no way to know for sure. But it looks like the nurse at Kingwood School and myself and Stacy on three different occasions acted in a way that saved his life. Why? I remember when Stacy was at the hospital with him four and a half years ago when he's diagnosed. And I came home and I went in our bedroom. God, the house had never been so empty. And I, I just looked up and I said, God, I, I've lived nearly half my life. Give it to me. Give it to me. I'll take it. I'll take shots in my eyeballs the rest of my life. Don't give it to him. Don't let him have it. I don't want him to have it. Why? Why? 
And he's such a good-natured little kid. He just rolls with the... He's done. He's fine. He'll come running through here in a minute. He's, he's a sick little kid. He's the kind of kid that'll, that'll uh, act like, Oh, I'm not feeling good. I'm dizzy. I think I'm going to go... And he'll play with you like that. You think, I'll twist your little head off. Diabetes isn't your problem. I'm going to kill you. Just freak you out. Oh, I think I don't feel good. He'll just sit there like this. You stop it. Stop it. You better hope you're in trouble because you're not. I'm going to kill you. Freak. He doesn't know. Brain cells are falling out of our head dead every day. He doesn't even know he's frying them. Let me give you another set of why questions. I read two weeks ago that the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation is doing a fundraiser to try to raise whatever, funds, products, material, out-of-date supplies, whatever they can get their hands on for the children in Rwanda who are type 1 diabetics. The children in Rwanda who have the same kind of diabetes that he has, they say, look, bring your old, anything you got, just bring it. You want to donate money? Donate money. You got old supplies you're not going to use? Bring them. And let's ship them over. They have almost no care. Do you know what the life expectancy of a child in Rwanda is who has type 1 diabetes? It's five years. In five years, they die. My son contracted this at four. This January, he'll be nine. If he lived in Rwanda, he'd be dead. He'd be dead in the next six months. Why? On that side, why? why? Why does he live here and get treatment and they don't? I mean, God doesn't love him or us more than he loves the children in Rwanda. I can't. That'd be a terrible God. He doesn't love. Why? Explain that. Why? Why did he? Why did he? Why does he live in five minutes from a hospital and then have an ambulance ride to another hospital and see three doctors and have care? Rep? Why does he have all that and they don't have? Why wasn't he born a hundred years ago? A hundred years ago, type one diabetics just died. Why? I don't know why. What I do know, though, is maybe the real thing about life is not knowing the answer to all the why questions. Maybe the real thing about life is being relieved from needing to know. Maybe the real part about life is saying, life's always going to present tensions that I don't understand, but I don't have to know. To know the answer is to have greater control. Maybe I don't need greater control. Maybe what I need is greater surrender. Maybe I don't ever get the liberty to know those things. Maybe what I need to know is say, you know what? I don't know why, but under God, God is good. And God is incredible. And God is awesome. And He's my Savior. And I can lift my voice and my soul up to worship Him in the middle of unresolved issues. I don't have to wait for them to be resolved. Worship. Is connecting with God in surrender. And it probably means, it at least sometimes means, that you're not going to know. But you don't have to know. Maybe what you have to know is God. And the more you get to know Him, the less important the answers to those questions become. And you can live in peace. Would you stand with me this morning?
today. You've come in this place, you know, for 20 different reasons. For some reason or another, when you woke up this morning, you decided, you decided to get dressed and you decided the thing that you needed to do was go to church. For whatever reason, that's what you decided. And now you're here. And as we leave this morning, the greatest question that we need to answer is not why do things happen or when will things change. The greatest question we need to answer is, did God's presence have His way in your life this morning? Why did you come? What does God want to do in your life today? Let me just tell you how you measure worship. If we leave today and you say, God wanted to do this in my life or through my life, and He did it, you worshiped. Whatever it looks like, whatever it sounds like, it doesn't matter. You worshiped. If you you were aware that God's presence came near you and you could discern what He wanted and you surrendered to that, you worshiped Him. You worshiped Him. So this morning, we've got a couple of songs. And I just want to ask you to do something. Rebel against the architecture of this room. Don't let yourself be an observer. This morning, just ease into a worshiper. Just lift your soul, lift your eyes, lift your voice, lift your being, and say, God, (laughs) today, Lord, I look above all the other things, and I worship you. God, I worship you in this place. I want to connect with you in spirit and in truth. I surrender the issues of my life. You may have no tension. You may have great tension. Either way, you lift up in the middle of all of it and say, God, I surrender this morning. Come on, begin to leave.